Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Petit. I'm Brian Kodak. I'm Ewan Dahlqvist. And I'm Jan Kunste. And we are your co-host and editor for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings of musings of the arbitration world and 1% social distancing. Get away from me. <laughs> Where are we guys? All in London, all in the same room. Socially distancing. Yes, apologies for any insufficiencies when it comes to the sound quality. We're trying to be as far apart as the microphone and the loss allow for at the same time, <laughs> trying to find that sweet spot. <laughs> That's right. But we hopefully will be out of this lockdown and into a tiered system soon here in London. Mm -hmm. Just a few more days, weeks? I'm not even sure. Not December 2nd, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, before we can all run away and go to different countries and contaminate <laughs> everybody else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a friend of mine was trying to go up north and they said that anyone from London that goes to the north is considered like the parasite that is coming into their town. It's yeah. like, Londoner, escape. Yeah, oh, yeah. let's stay here. Yeah. For the time being. I have a major mea culpa, guys. I can't remember if you were copied on this correspondence. I have I have an apology to oh, do yes. on the air mm -hmm. to, uh, to the ICC. Not really an apology, just a clarification, because I was saying something offhandedly that I shouldn't have in our quote-unquote affectionate in-house heckler, Michael McElrath, reached out. And, and it corrected me a little bit. And you probably re remember this offhand remark I made about the likely new president of the ICC. Yeah. Michael, who called himself, calls himself an uh, affectionate in-house heckler, wanted to point <laughs> out that uh, Claudia Solomon is not the front-runner, as I said, but she is the recommended candidate and subject to further approvals, will be the next ICC court president. He also wanted to point out that the process is actually way more transparent than I made it sound like. It's not a secret cabal. It's been uniquely transparent this time, and they really tried to make it. So, oh, yeah, because so, you were like, Joel was like, I know the information. I know, I can't say. I'm so sorry. I know, but I can't. Yeah. Yeah, so. Thank you for the correction. In, in my defense, and I told Michael this as well, I think the fact still remains true that the, the candidates who were not anointed or recommended the names of them are not disclosed. That's not public. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the argument for this is that keeping this information confidential encourages more people to apply. You don't have to announce to the greater world that you are running. And that's something that is desirable. What, why is that though? Yeah, uh, because you don't have to risk like putting your name out there. And also uh, those who may not feel that their profiles fit the profile of previous ICC presidents, who I think have all been old white men mm -hmm. so far mm -hmm. might feel more comfortable applying if it's not a public thing. Although I feel personally that uh, there is an argument to, to be made for uh, the opposite of making this public, mm -hmm. actually. And I, again, I recognize here I'm like an uninformed outsider. I have no idea how the ICC actually works and what is desirable and what is not. But I think making it public who wants to be the president of the court 
would encourage those candidates to discuss their visions of the ICC and do right. it in a public setting and generate a, a discussion in the wider arbitration community. Sound sort of like a political yeah, campaign. Yeah, like political election. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I guess then this is, the ICC is a business organization. Essentially, it's not it's not a political office you're running for. It's like a, an executive position at a company. Yeah. So I guess it makes sense. But for those who are interested in learning more about how this process actually works and, and who would like to know more than I do, apparently... The ICC has published uh, something called the Terms of Reference for this appointment with all the relevant details of the procedure for the selection of Alexi Moore's replacement. Mm -hmm. So then you can make up your own mind whether you think it is sufficiently transparent or not. <laughs> and, uh, at least the facts are on the table and I apologize to the ICC and to Michael. Thank you for calling me out. And we've now demoted Joel to a guest host. <laughs> <laughs> As a result. No, we keep the comments coming. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, we are the first ones to say that we've uh, overset yeah. the balance. That, that will happen again. <laughs> it yeah. will happen oh, again. It happens episode. all the time. It happens all the time. That's the magic of our unscripted podcast. <laughs> yeah. So what are we doing today, guys? Well, we will start with an interview. Yes. With... Uh, Brett Kazmarek, who's currently online, so as we're recording, he is online defending his 50th evaluation of the damages in the Vattenfall case. Oh, we should also mention that for those who haven't noticed yeah. that the Vattenfall, uh, it's one hearing on one specific issue, or several issues, but on one question posed by the tribunal to the parties in the Vattenfall case. I think it's procedural order number 44 in this case that <laughs> sets the rules. I'm not even joking. There are 44 procedural orders on the record. So it's another hearing about the file, which is available on the Exit webpage for a week after the hearing. And I think that is basically a week after we published this episode as well. So hurry if you want to watch I'm it. I'm sure someone will strip it to YouTube, though, as well. Yeah. I think you may be overestimating the, the interest <laughs> in the general public about this. If you watch it live, live, normally they put it online afterwards as well. It's not live, though. I think it's a one-day delay. So they publish each day's okay. hearing one day after because okay. some confidential information is right, being right. removed okay. to the extent that yeah. there isn't, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So it's a little bit of a lag. But it's an interesting case and there are so many interesting characters mm -hmm. on the cast. It's a, it's a good play with mm -hmm. well-known arbitrators, well-known counsel, well-known court reporters, well-known tribunal secretaries, and well-known damages experts, which brings us back to right. our guest. <laughs> <laughs> Who um, is now part of IV Advisors um, in Washington, D.C., and he's been appointed in over 160 disputes um, in investor state arbitration and commercial arbitration different languages and also in U.S. litigation matters. So um, he is going to talk to us about um, one seemingly mundane but um, obviously important issue of, uh, in the damages sector. But I also um, start the interview talking to him about what counsel should look to when finding a damages expert. Um, because I think we all either appoint the repeat players or have no idea what's going to make a good um, interview for a damages expert to see if you're actually going to get the report that you would want for your client that is tailor-made to what your client needs for that specific dispute. We're finally starting to deliver on the promise to have non-arbitration lawyers talk about arbitration things yes. on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> it's been a few years in the making. I've even asked him a couple questions about what he thinks, so stay tuned for that. Wow, looking forward to that. Then we're doing a substantive segment, which I will take the lead on, which is the very narrow issue of enforcing against central bank assets, but I will try to situate it in the, the greater context of sovereign immunity and enforcement issues that we have touched right. upon in the past. But there's an interesting case coming out of a very sophisticated, uh, well-known arbitration jurisdiction in Sweden that I will focus on. Of course, <laughs> of course. And then we're going to have our happy fun time where we're going to discuss 
some is it happy i don't know i think so yeah um the age of paperless arbitration are we there yet finally so, some of us are i, I think so. so i think so um so we're, we're i think we're there we're there so we're gonna we're gonna talk about this a little bit more during our happy fun time great And welcome back. I am here with uh, Brent Kazmarek, who is, was the managing director of Navigate and now has entered on to his own venture called IAV Advisors. Um, he is the leading uh, damages expert in both investor state as well as commercial arbitration. And it really, I could provide a professional summary of your uh, previous and active engagements, uh, but I think we will would, wouldn't have very much time to discuss anything else. <laughs> so with that being said, uh, I just want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So part of our um, goal for this season of the podcast was to um, engage some users or participants in arbitration that weren't uh, purely counsel uh, to, to clients. And so having a damages expert really fits in with that aim. Um, and the reason being is because part, as part of being counsel, it's not just writing briefs and, you know, presenting before a tribunal. It is also dealing with these other um, puzzle pieces within the, you know, arbitration process. So with that as the general blanket idea for this interview, I want to start with more kind of a general discussion about find, choosing and finding a damages expert, because I know we get into these big cases and, you're instructed by your partner to say, okay, find us a damages expert. And it seems to be this sea of possible experts you can appoint and you can often be paralyzed by that choice. So being on the other side of that choice, um, what would you say are some of like the criteria or categories as counsel that you should be looking for when assessing whether this damages expert is right for your case? Sure. Well, obviously, um, you know, damages is at the end of the day what uh, most people, at least the the users of arbitration, will define success at. So it's an important, um, you know, uh, decision to make uh, for counsel and clients. Um, you know, it, it's evolved quite a bit, I would say, in the past twenty years. You know, I remember when I first got involved in this space back in the mid nineties. Um, there weren't too many firms or people who had expertise in the area. Um, damages experts were mostly relegated to domestic litigation matters, and arbitration was sort of a, you know, something you threw in um, if it came out. Uh, but now it's really become a specialty um, because the process is very different um, than litigation. Uh, so um, today. Uh, there's a multitude of people to pick. Um, so beauty contests are normal. Um, <laughs> we, you know, I would say uh, I don't enjoy them, but uh, you know, you you learn to to live with them because it's it's helpful for the client. You know, they need to see options. Um, but you know, in choosing your actual expert, um, you know, firm the firm doesn't really matter so much in my view. Um, it's the person uh, because the firm isn't offering a viewpoint. It's the individual person 
um, that is signing the report, the individual person who is testifying. So you really need to look for that particular person um, that is, you know, experienced. Um, and experience not only in the topic area you're looking for, but I think it's very important that they're experienced in the, in the process. They understand the arbitration process, they've produced reports, and they've testified before. Those are, in my view, hugely important attributes to be looking for. And when, let's say you found someone that you were, would be interested in engaging, is there typically, or have you received kind of an extensive vetting process of these preliminary stages of asking you questions on what do you think of the case or asking you to prepare a preliminary report on a, you know, no prejudice basis where we're not, we may not, we may not hire you. We're asking a bunch of people to prepare these types of reports. How extensive do these pre-engagement um, interactions become? Um, I would say they they run the gamut of the spectrum. I mean, from literally, I do get calls still that they say, we know this is you. We want to hire you to, as I said, the full-blown beauty contest <laughs> um, with proposals. And as you, as you uh, indicated, even can you prepare preliminary viewpoints on the substance and the, and the merits of the issues that are um, going to be arbitrated? Um, you know, I, I would say when you get to that extreme of asking experts for views, it's not that helpful um, because you can't get into the details um, in substance uh, and you don't want to be you know, buying a viewpoint uh, as a counsel or a client um, with very little being given to the experts. Right. And, and from the expert point of view, it, it, it's not great because you think about, you know, as a business, right? Um, are, are they just taking or using my opinion to shop around? Um, so it's a little bit uncomfortable to go that right. far, but most people don't. Really, I think most people recognize the, the business attributes of being an expert and kind of stop and say, okay, we just want your, your overall credentials and then focus a little bit on, you know, maybe the issues that are in this case. Have you dealt with it before? You know, tell us about that. And right. That, that's, I think, the most helpful avenue for, for users. Right. And then, so let's say you have been chosen to engage, we move down the process and you sit down with the client or the council and you guys are going over the case and they've, um, uh, one of the preliminary things that they're going to ask you to do, which to limit the scope of your work is to kind of buy into some assumptions that really help their case. And this to me has always been an interesting factor because it could, in my opinion, uh, really lead an expert down the garden path, or it could expose them to a very intense cross-examination. So um, how important is it for a damages expert to kind of fight back on these assumptions, instructions by counsel, and how much is it you part of kind of being a team player and um, being a, quote, hired gun, for lack of a better term? Uh, that, that is an excellent question. Um, and I know that you presented as assumptions slash instructions. Mm -hmm. 
And <clears throat> people who know me know that I really dislike the term instruction when it comes to experts. I mean, clearly, counsel is taking instruction from their client. It's a very different relationship um, counsel has with their client. Experts are still supposed to be operating under, you know, the notion that they're there to assist the tribunal. So they have a different responsibility. Um, so I tend to not like at all using the word instruction. Um, what I tend to like is for clients to give me the assumptions that they would like me to, you know, do my work under. And those assumptions are merely legal. In right. That is it. Um, because it, it is a very slippery slope, the word instruction for, for quantum experts. <clears throat> I have um, been in cases where literally an expert was instructed on what discount rate to use in a DCF model, what growth rate to use, what profit margin to use. And I mean, that's the extreme. Yeah. You wonder, well, what dependence do they provide to the process? when you're instructed on all those things. So um, I think it's better always for counsel to limit their instructions to legal issues, assume this is a breach, you know, um, assume <clears throat> even the date, you know, a date issue is a tough one. Yeah. Um, I, I have seen opposing experts and, and I myself have been asked, questions such as, well, what if you had been told to assume a different date? Um, and so I've learned over the years that uh, I shouldn't even take an instruction on a date. It should be a discussion between counsel and myself as to what date makes sense factually, legally in the case, um, as opposed to just taking a date because they told me to take a date and right. on. So that's true. The valuation date is a perfect example of a blend between kind of a legal analysis of when that valuation date would be with the factual analysis of how would that actually present a fair market value, which, um, which can be, you know, a broad term, but within the context of finding what the value of this ongoing concern would be, or the value of the shares at this time, because those could present two very different scenarios. Absolutely. The, the date um, that you pick can have a profound effect on the numbers. So it should be something that is discussed. It should be something the expert is comfortable with um, and something the expert is flexible on, too, because, as we know, there are different legal issues dealing with dates. Um, so you, as an expert, you can't take a hard view on a date, but you should at least understand why dates are, are being chosen from a legal or factual point of view. Right. Um, now, I, I just pulled up one of your reports from like 2016 and in your background, it says you've represented more than a hundred, you've been served as expert in more than 120 disputes, more than a hundred international arbitrations and more than 90 investor state arbitrations. So you've seen a lot. Um, what would you say is something now that you're seeing a trend um, in kind of the field of damages and in international arbitration that you think should be something that counsel arbitrators or other damages experts should be kind of 
keeping an eye out for or paying more attention to? Um, well, as I intimated uh, at the beginning, um, there's a lot more attention and focus on this area than there was in the past. Um, it was viewed, you know, in the 90s as kind of a club. And I don't hear anybody talk about that anymore. Um, and so there's a lot of new faces and voices, and, and that's good. Um, we always uh, would encourage, I think, in any industry, um, different perspectives. Um, but, you know, as you're looking for an expert, uh, I, can, I can bring up one example of a case um, that I, I still recall vividly. Um, I was appointed by a state, uh, and the opposing expert um, was very um, experienced in the matter, and, and admittedly more experience in the particular area, the industry, if you will, uh, than me. Um, and I ended up working with the opposing counsel on that matter in a different case, maybe five years later. <clears throat> um, the first case we were actually very successful at. Um, the tribunal awarded in a number that was, I think, within two or three percent of our valuation. Oh, wow. Um, but I remember still vividly today, the opposing counsel, when I met with them for this other case, saying to me, you know, our expert was a far better expert than you. Caught <laughs> me off guard. And I said, okay. And they said, what I mean is they, they knew the material and their background, their credentials was far better. But they told me, you presented the material far better than they did. Right. And I said, you know, that's fair. That, that was a very fair assessment. Um, I was quite honest with them. But it, it, it pinpointed to me an issue that I think is very important, that there are many people who are fantastically knowledgeable on various topics which require expertise and dispute, but putting it into a report or being able to deal with it in a confrontational uh, setting, such as a hearing, is another matter. You know, you, you have to be able to, I think, have all three buckets covered, the substance, the presentation and know how to deal with the adversarial issues, um, because if you if you don't have all three, it it just doesn't work. Uh, so that is what I would say first and foremost. I would recommend any counselor or client to be looking for uh, is somebody that is really good substantively, but also knows the process and knows how to produce the right product. Right presented, you know, in a coherent and efficient process that everybody can digest. So let's test this theory. Um, we talked previously about your something that you had really been interested in or that you thought was a problem with um, damages, presentation of damages kind of today was the issue of fair market value. And to myself as a counsel and having to write damages sections in different cases, that seems kind of like a um, elementary uh, thing to discuss with someone as, ex as experienced as yourself. However, 
you have told me previously, and that, that this is what I want to get into, is that actually people are making big fundamental um, errors in the presentation of the fair market value and actually presenting a difference between fair market value and damages. And can you just kind of uh, talk us through what, what you were thinking on, the, on that issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, what, what I um, try to teach people is that fair market value or fair value or even market value, these are all different terms. They're not necessarily synonymous, but um, they're all reporting standards of value. And they were developed for matters that have nothing to do with damages. Um, fair market value, as I've explained to people, was a term adopted um, by the U.S. Congress in 1916 to deal with gift and estate taxes. So how do you report the value of a gift um, or an estate you inherit uh, on your tax return hmm. that may be subject to taxes? Um, so it has a very different universal application that in its history, but has now, you know, in, been introduced into not only investor state arbitration and treaties, these terminologies, but also, you know, in certain circumstances, I've dealt with it in commercial arbitrations as well. Um, and there's still a very diverse understanding, if you will, as to that definition, lots of lawyers like to think of, you know, if you've done harm, there's there's damages, and you think of concepts like speculative foreseeability. You know, you think about well, we should be conservative in our application, but reporting standards of value like fair market value have their own guidelines, their own rules of implementation that have nothing to do with damages. Um, and there, at this point in time, I think in the international arbitration community, I, I've come across arbitrators who understand it very well. Um, and then I've come across arbitrators who don't understand it at all. Um, and it's something that I think the community needs to improve upon. Um, they, they need to get themselves more educated to understand that when you're calculating fair market value of an investment, a business, what have you, there's a totally separate set of rules to be applied than you you probably learned in your you know your legal upbringing about damages. Right. I think it's it's funny to try to pinpoint these sources because we're almost a creator of our own undoing because we're trying to find a way to find the fair market value. And what we're doing is looking back at old precedent and how other tribunal members have assessed <laughs> fair market value. And then you see that you're basically the blind leading the blind with, you know, con confusion and methodology and which methodology is appropriate for which type of case. Um, would, would you say there's, are there like an international, is there like a white book? Is there an international standard for valuation that if a tribunal member was trying to basically make sense of all of this? Where would they look beyond precedent? Um, I would totally agree with you first off that, yeah, it can be a little bit of a blind leading the blind when arbitrators point to other awards 
and decisions um, where they might not have been informed themselves. And you kind of perpetuate a, a misnomer about some of these concepts um, that definitely is going on today. You know, where to look. Um, you, you know, I think hopefully this podcast is somewhat helpful. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> on that topic. But it, it's very difficult. You know, arbitrators are very busy people. Um, and they have a lot to, to on their plate. And it's difficult for them to find time, I think, to educate themselves on these sort of topics. You know, so hopefully we can continue to develop some some seminars, um, some working sessions. Uh, you know, I, I've thought about myself, wow, it, it might be very interesting, and I, and I think it would be quite popular to put on something of maybe a two-day seminar of just walking through arbitrators and aspiring arbitrators on topics such as fair market value or market value and, and, and what it means and how it's different from the way you think of damages. Uh, but we need to do more of that. I mean, because you, you, as an arbitrator, you can't get it in a dispute setting, you know, in your normal everyday experience, because you've got, you know, your contentious parties, right? And they're arguing right. various aspects to their advantage, uh, which they ought to do um, to represent their clients properly. And so it's very difficult, I think, to learn this on the job. You really have to go outside of a dispute to learn it. So I do think this is an area that, that needs to be addressed more in some uh, conferences, seminars, what have you, to help educate uh, both existing arbitrators and aspiring arbitrators. Right. Because And also, even when you get to the minutia, the calculations themselves, you see a lot of counsel as well as arbitrators kind of shy away from any sort of independent assessment on these numbers. Um, do you think there needs to be more of that, more of like a proactive approach on um, getting into kind of, okay, why did you select this country risk at 3.5%, which still to me, country risk is, is a funny, is a funny um, number that's pulled out of the air in a lot of cases. Um, but do you think that there's, you, we should put more onus on the arbitrators to kind of investigate um, for uh, like interest, for example, um, a lot of arbitrators will just accept the number given by one of the parties that they find to be su quote successful. Um, do you see a lot of things slipping through the cracks there? I mean, we could probably have our own podcast on country risk. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe boring for some, but interesting for me. It, you know, country risk. Just to touch on it very briefly, is one of those aspects of valuation that actually is still in development. Um, even the people, most practitioners would point to, like Professor DeModeran, you'd, you'd have to read all of his writings to understand his, his viewpoints and some of the numbers he publishes about it to have a complete appreciation of it. But it, it is still very much misunderstood, even in the expert community. Um, and so... For arbitrators, it's a, that's a tough thing to deal with. Yes. Um, for sure. But, you know, one, one thing mm -hmm. I would say, and it, and it touches back on what you mentioned earlier, is I think arbitrators, frankly, if I could give my philosophy on how they should approach each task, is 
not to try to rely, at least on quantum matters, too much on what has been decided in the past. Um, things keep evolving uh, quite a bit um, in the space, and the knowledge base has been growing. You know, there's still a gap, but it's been growing. Um, that I just think arbitrators are doing themselves a disservice to try to reference to other cases in the past to try to help resolve quantum issues in their current case. You know, a perfect example of that is, you know, using DCF um, to do evaluation. You know, yes. the Iran uh, or Iran-US Claims Tribunal, those, those matters really kind of set forward that standard, right, of, well, if you're not a going concern, we can't use DCF. Right. Um, and almost, I would say that that rule has been understood to be not applicable these days. Um, we, we understand that even, you know, extractive industries, right, like minerals, oil and gas, even before you start operating and producing profits, people know that DCF is being used um, and arbitrators know this. And so the, the knowledge base has just evolved so much that I think arbitrators would be better suited to decide quantum matters as they're presented within the dispute itself, as opposed to trying to reach back because they're reaching back in time and not, taking advantage of all the knowledge that everybody has, has garnered over the years. Right. I think one of the, just to follow up on this DCF discussion is one of the, the major reasons why they don't have on, or a, a company that isn't an ongoing concern availed to the DCF methodology is because this term, as you say, speculative. And I think that term gets thrown around quite a lot um, as a, as a defense from any respondent to say, well, this should, ergo damages should be zero. Um, have you noticed, or do you think that that's a tactical play that experts also employ, or do you think it's being kind of overly used? I think it's still completely overly used. Um, as I indicated at the outset, the, the, the idea of speculative doesn't even arise in uh, the calculation of fair market value or market value or fair value. It, it's just not a concept that any business professional understands. <laughs> it is purely regulated to, you know, damaging the issues. And again, these are, these are two separate uh, paradigms in my view. So it, there is a crossover. Um, and, uh, it, it's unfortunate, and a lot of times it's due to just imprecise use of language. Um, you know, valuation is a term that can be applied very broadly, but when you're talking about valuation of of assets, investments, you know, in, in the context of uh, particular investor state arbitrations, um, oftentimes, you know, I see people use the term valuation of damages and I'm, I cringe, I go, oh, <laughs> please, let's not say that because it, it just is a slippery slope, right? It right. leads me down to this idea that you're doing damages 
and you're not actually doing something like fair market value, which has its own rules and implementation right. guidelines, right? And so sometimes our own loose language, and I, I'm just at fault for it. Sometimes I, you know, when I'm reviewing my reports and editing them before they finally go out, I catch myself and they go, oh, why did I say that? Yes. That, you know, uh, or the, the lawyers are editing it and they're writing things. And I'm like, oh, we can't say that. You know, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think we need to be more um, cognizant of our use of that term in order to understand what it is that we're actually trying to achieve on the quantum side. You know, is it damages, which has got its own set of concepts, or are we determining fair market value, you know, and some decrease in fair market value? Where are you comparing one fair market value kit calculation like before measure and one after? Right. Um, and those are very different things. Um, so our language is is important on this topic. I I have um it, it just seems that lawyers get into that you know the they get into all the legal arguments and they spend thousands of pages discussing these you know the treatise and interpretation and then they go get to damages and then they say as our expert said it's this amount and here's interest goodbye um, and it really is I really have an axe to grind with that as to the industry and I challenge the industry as a whole is to really specify, as you say, this like specification of what you're actually seeking and why you're entitled to it. And what, what I have a particular gripe with is that we put as counsel a damages, I don't, I don't want to say valuation, a damages number that is based off the valuation of, you know, whatever the harm was. And we don't really specify, we have five or six breaches. And then the tribunal, let's say, decides on one breach and not the other, but we don't really say, or we don't really get into, in some cases, how that would affect our damages calculation, because at the end of the day, the harm was the harm. The breach is just kind of the road the tribunal can draw to get to that harm. And I, I'm wondering if you are, if you particularly um, have found this, that um, counsel doesn't really specify, let's say if in the investment treaty context, they have expropriation and FET breach, regardless of which one the tribunal chooses, they are basically putting forth that the damages are the same. Do you think that's, have you, have you seen that in practice or um, can you sympathize with my gripe? <laughs> I think I can sympathize and I'm going to try to uh, summarize it in a slightly different way. And okay. Uh, Topic that you'll tell me what what I try to tell you know my people that work with me is don't worry about whether you label a measure as being expropriatory or uh, arbitrary um, or unfair and inequitable that's a label mm -hmm. um, and what we as quantum experts should be concern with is what what is the effect of the underlying uh, measure that we're talking about? What did the government do? What did the opposing party do? Uh, if it's a commercial case? And how did it impact the business or the investment? Right. And let's leave it to the lawyers to place the label on it. <laughs> and if they want to call it expropriatory, so be it. If they want to call it unfair and inequitable, so be it. Uh, 
let's not let's not get involved in that. Let's just say, please tell me what it is you think the opposing party did that was wrong. Yeah, and this comes back to again, we're, my you know the instructions or assumptions, and, and you know what I want to be told as an expert is, just tell me what it is that the other party did wrong, and mm-hmm. I will tell you what the impact of that is. And we'll work together on factually, when did it happen, you know, how did it play out, et cetera, in terms of quantifying it. But that's it. I just wanted to know what you're complaining about. And let me, <laughs> let me calculate the impact. And then you can go about as lawyers bucketing it however you want to bucket it and have your arguments with the other side about that. That's very true. You do have to preserve your impartiality on the, the legal analysis and that in that scenario. Well, that, that, those are all my gripes and that's all, all those questions I have. And I think we're onto something and creating a bit of a seminar. So watch this space. Maybe we can uh, create a seminar with the arbitrators and, and counsel that are interested in delving deeper into these valuation issues. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I know I, I, you can always sense in the space when we tackled an issue, maybe ad nauseum and people are a little bit tired of it and quantum has been, been discussed over the last uh, seven, eight years quite extensively. But I think it's time maybe to just be more precise in some of the topics. And, and right. I think um, we can be more precise and be helpful to keep moving the, the space forward. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. So it's uh, the time of pandemics, and it might, might be nice, I thought, to talk about a different kind of immunity than the one we're all waiting to achieve against COVID. <laughs> In international law, we generally talk about three main categories of sovereign immunity. None of them is related to virus. Diplomatic immunity, immunity from jurisdiction, and immunity from enforcement. And today we're delving a little bit in the deeper end of the immunity against enforcement pool. Are we going to have the um, MC Hammer song again? Well, I... (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, we can just let that be the the new theme song. Yeah, of our whole podcast. (laughs) As we all know, guys, an arbitral award is just a piece of paper until it is satisfied. Fortunately, most arbitral awards are, of course, complied with voluntarily. And legal enforcement, as uh, Doak Bishop puts it, is not the norm, but the exception. But the norm in this case depends in part on the exception, because the possibility of enforcement is an important inducement to voluntarily comply with awards. Of course, you know what the the background is, and if there is an enforcement waiting, you might be uh, inclined or more inclined to actually comply voluntarily. And enforcement is generally a matter of domestic law. So the first step, generally speaking, is to identify the jurisdiction in which there are assets against which the award might be enforced. Then the party seeking enforcement will attempt to have the award recognized under the New York Convention, which we know everything about, but also the law of the jurisdiction in which you seek enforcement. And then finally, at the final step, we have the process of execution, which is actually 
getting the assets. And th there's some confusion sometimes when it comes to enforcement versus execution. And I think enforcement is sort of the, the wider term, whereas execution is the more narrow final step where you get what you want, basically. Mm -hmm. And when the award is issued against a private party, the process can be complicated and expensive and time-consuming. But where the award is issued against a state, as for example in most investment treaty arbitrations, all investment treaty arbitrations, I guess, apart from cost awards, mm -hmm. or maybe even a state agency in some commercial cases, things are even more complicated because the party seeking enforcement will have to balance a number of competing considerations. First, you're looking at the jurisdiction in which to seek enforcement, and in many cases you have to rule out the state that is the state that you're trying to enforce against. Mm -hmm. Second, the value of the targeted assets. Is it even worth it? Uh, can you identify assets that are significant enough? And this is, of course, particularly relevant in investor-state arbitration if you have a large award. Third, the nature of state ownership of the targeted assets. And this is something I'll get back to pretty soon because it's tied to another issue, which is the fourth one, the relevance of sovereign immunity. Because even where assets held by states are identified in a jurisdiction that are that is friendly to enforcement under the New York Convention, the enforcing party must still show that the assets are not subject to immunity. And this is a complex area of law, state or sovereign immunity, that is, which differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And it is a doctrine under customary international law. And how this customary rule has been received by states varies a lot. And you're probably familiar because we've touched upon some of these cases in the past, for example, famously in China and now also Hong Kong, we have the doctrine of absolute immunity, which means basically that a foreign state benefits from immunity unless it explicitly waives that immunity. Many other states, however, particularly Western states, follow the doctrine of restrictive sovereign immunity, which means that the presumption is that the state is, is immune but if it acts for commercial purposes, those acts are not granted immunity, which is often codified in statute, for example, in the UK, in Canada, in the US, that is the rule. And statutes such as the UK Sovereign Immunity Act and the US uh, FSIA, Foreign Sovereign Immunities? Yeah, I, I looked to the American... <laughs> That's the one, yeah. Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act. Thank you. These both contain explicit exemptions for sovereign immunity when a state has consented to arbitration, under the theory that consent to arbitration amounts to implicit waiver of such immunity. Uh, and Albert Jan Vandenberg has... Nice. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> He's put it uh, in a way that is famous, saying that parties seeking enforcement against states often find themselves dealing with the illogic of a state being said to have waived immunity for the purposes of adjudication and recognition of the award, but having retained the right to assert immunity with respect to the execution of the award. Mm -hmm. This is the typical scenario in many places. So the immunity can be waived by consent for the jurisdiction, for the jurisdictional immunity and for the enforcement, but not for the execution part. So that means that in the typical case, unless you're in a, in a place that happens to follow the, the absolute immunity theory, you have to look at the property itself to see whether or not it is being used for commercial purposes. 
And this brings us to the UN Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities of States and their property. And the and their property part is what we're interested in now. Mm-hmm. This, by way of introduction, is a convention that has 28 signatories. It needs 30 to enter into force. So there is no convention in force, but some courts, so we get back to the Swedish courts, for example, treat this as binding or as reflecting customary international law. Mm-hmm. And many major powers like UK, China, France, Japan, Sweden Western. have signed this. Major Western. Russia as well. Oh. Yeah. And China. <laughs> and uh, do we really count France as Western? Is it more of a developing country? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anywho. Article 17 of the Convention restricts a state's invocation of immunities in proceedings related to the validity of the arbitration agreement, arbitral procedure, and set-asides of an award, but it does not extend this restriction to enforcement. And under Article 19, express consent is required to attach, arrest, or execute the property of a state unless... It has been established that the property is specifically in use or intended for use by the state for other than government non-commercial purposes, yada, 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 yada. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem if you try to enforce against the state, obviously, because most state assets held abroad are diplomatic, military, or in other ways used for non-commercial purposes. And other assets may be held through state-owned entities, which are generally considered independent of the state itself. And this brings us to the main focus today, which is central bank assets, which, if I speculate a little bit, I think is sort of the next frontier when it comes to enforcing against states. Mm -hmm. And this is for several reasons, and we have a number of cases backing me up, so I'm not speculating into the wild here, but the, the underlying rationale is kind of appealing in the sense that central bank assets are attractive targets if you have a judgment, if you're a creditor. Because as Professor Ingrid Wirt has observed, I think she's at Vanderbilt Law School, central banks frequently have accounts with foreign banks, including foreign central banks, such as the US Federal Reserve, often uh, for the purpose of maintaining foreign currency reserves, which makes central bank assets tantalizing. They are liquid, they are geographically dispersed, you can find them in many places, and they are plentiful, typically, large value assets. Yeah, Yeah, sorry, it's just, it matters, we're looking for money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The main difficulty, however, uh, with enforcing against these assets is the especially strong level of immunity generally afforded to these assets. And here again, we come back to different states taking different approaches to the issue of immunity. The strongest approach is in the UN Convention, which, as I mentioned, is not in force, but still inspires many states. And in the UN Convention, we see something close to absolute immunity for central banks. I will read out Article 21.1c because it will come back momentarily. The following categories, in particular, of property of a state shall not be considered as property specifically in use or intended for use by the state. Blah, blah, blah. The commercial activity exception. And then there's a list. And C in this list is property of the central bank or other monetary authority of the state. Mm -hmm. However, as I said, this is not clearly customary international law. And it is not what we see in every state in the world. 
So this strong approach is not echoed everywhere. For example, you, uh, United States and Germany and Canada, I think, are all uh, in sort of a middle approach, which provides for exceptions for central banks, basically allowing, under some circumstances, for enforcement against central bank assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have the weakest approach, which is a commercial activity ex- exception that applies explicitly to central banks in Australia and Israel, for example. So central banks' assets have no special immunity. They are like any other state asset that is Mm -hmm. deemed commercial. So it matters in which jurisdiction you're trying to enforce an award against central bank assets, which takes us to Sweden. And already off mic, we've mentioned the ASCOM versus Kazakhstan award, which is the gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) We've talked about this case when it comes to corruption issues, right. co- cooling off clauses in, in treaty arbitration, domestic court review, appointing arbitrators on behalf of states that do not participate. But now we are returning to this gift that keeps on giving to talk about central bank assets. And this is, of course, the SEC case. Mm-hmm. I call it ASCOM versus Kazakhstan, but it has, I think, four claimants. Uh, Anatoly Stati, Gabriel Stati, the ASCOM group, and the TerraRoff Trans Trading Limited. It's an SEC case in which Kazakhstan was held liable to the tune of over 500 million US dollars uh, for various measures that violated the ECT. Kazakhstan refused to satisfy the award and applied for set aside. And it even went all the way to the Swedish Supreme Court, I think. Uh, it failed in any event, so the award still stands, uh, but the state still refused to pay. And the claimants have then sought to. Uh, enforce the award in like six different jurisdictions, Sweden being one of them. And in Sweden, the claimants sought to enforce the award uh, against assets belonging to the National Bank of Kazakhstan, which is the Kazakh Central Bank, which uh, held or holds, I'm not sure if they still do, uh, an account at a private bank in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And the investors first went to the Swedish Enforcement Agency, which is a a discussion on its own that Sweden has a specialized agency that you can go to directly so you don't have to go to court. You go to this specialized agency to seek recognition and enforcement. And they said... They did so. Yes, here, take your money. Yeah. Like one sentence. Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Like, thanks for coming. We've been waiting. However, because they often do that, there is a system in place in Sweden uh, through which you can appeal, and Kazakhstan did so to the Svea Court of Appeal, arguing that the property of the National Bank was protected by state immunity. Mm-hmm. And this summer, the Court of Appeal overturned the enforcement agency's attachment orders in a very interesting way. I, I, I can speak about this for like 45 minutes, and I'm going to try to do it as quickly as I can. But it is interesting because it is, as far as I know, the first time a domestic court has extensively engaged with the UN Convention from 2004. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not enforced, Sweden has ratified it, and it seems that the courts treated it as binding, or it said something to the effect of the convention being the clearest expression we have about, the, about states' prevailing understanding about state immunity or something like that. Um, and the court looked at Article 21.1c of the convention that I mentioned, where central bank assets are actually exempted and covered by state immunity. Uh, and when applying this article, uh, the Court of Appeal would res- presumably fi- find that the assets are immune from enforcement. 
Uh, and that's what they did. But they also notably did not go on to analyze state practice and opinion juris to determine whether or not this is in, in fact customary international law. They, they took it as sort of a starting point and didn't really engage with why it was a starting point. Mm. Just because they ratified, because they signed the treaty. Presumably. Yeah. And I think this is, to me, this is not very controversial. And I'm looking at Jana because you studied investment arbitration in Sweden. I think also the, mm. the um, Sedlmayr enforcement case, they, they applied, the Swedish courts applied the convention or discussed the convention at least as if it was supposed to be applied. Yeah. So this is, this is not out of the blue. It's kind of a reasonable starting point. That is customary international law or that it applies to Sweden? Uh, well, that's a good question. That one that neither I nor the court would want to respond to, I think. <laughs> well, it seems like, I don't know, I haven't read, um, you know, the decision in detail, but it, at least the, the interpretation of whether or not it's customary international law, as you say, right? Yeah, they didn't really, they didn't answer that question. And I think we can, it's not customary international law to the extent that we have states with legislation that does not comply with the convention at all. And we only have 28 states signing up and it's not in force which, yeah. of course, would indicate that there's yeah. no opinion juris, because if we had more opinion juris, maybe more states would feel inclined to Right, and they didn't sign. go into that analysis. No, they didn't. They took it for granted. And I think, so maybe to answer your question in a speculation, I think it's because they, they deemed it to be binding as far as Sweden is concerned. Okay. Probably. Mm -hmm. That's what we can guess. Mm -hmm. But what they did is that they, they found that they should apply Article 21.1c, and then rather than doing this whole public international law analysis that we just discussed, they, they just went straight into the convention And the two questions they dealt with was, uh, first of all, is the National Bank of Kazakhstan a central bank within the meaning of the treaty, uh, which specifies that property is to be understood as broader than ownership or possession. And here the court rejected two arguments that the investors had raised against applying the article. And the court found that Kazakhstan had not abused its right by asserting immunity which is an interesting and clever argument mm -hmm. that I think we'll see in other contexts. And uh, there's a whole... Did either of you watch the Jan Paulsen Kaplan lecture? Mm -hmm. I think he talks about abuse of right mm -hmm. as well, because that's part of his, his new book. This is an interesting general principle that didn't fly here. Uh, the investors try to rely on Article 26.8 of the ECT, which basically uh, obliges uh, the treaty states to carry out without delay any such award and shall make provision for the effective enforcement of any award under the treaty. So the argument, I guess, was that the state has undertaken to comply with the award. They are not trying not to do it. They are abusing a right here. But this did not fly. Uh, because the court found that there is nothing to support the investor's objection that a state could lose its right to invoke immunity against measures of constraint on the ground that it has abused its right. It also said that it is logical that immunity from post-judgment measures of constraint is invoked specifically on the ground that the state does not consent to them, i.e. irrespective of the state's position on the proceeding that lead to the measure of constraint. So this is kind of the, the flip side of Albert Jan van den Berg's suggesting that there is a, a logic that a state tries to waive immunity for, from jurisdiction uh, while retaining the right to, to assert immunity with respect to the execution. Uh, the court also rejected the investor's claim that the National Bank was intertwined with the Kazakh state to the extent that it would not benefit from separate immunity, separate from the state, like an extra layer of protection. Mm -hmm. um, Effectively, jumping through the analysis here, uh, 
the Swedish Court of Appeal appears to end up at sort of an American position, saying that central bank assets are presumed to enjoy immunity from enforcement. Can you say that again? The Swedish position came to an American solution? <laughs> just for the record. Just yeah. Okay, thank you. I'm just, I'm just trying to make it you know, easy to understand for those of us <laughs> who look at the world from an American perspective. I'm not saying that was guiding the court in any way. <laughs> So central bank assets enjoy, presumptively enjoy immunity from enforcement unless you can show that the property is held for some non-sovereign purpose. So the court removed the attachment orders saying that these assets were covered by sovereign immunity. So this is essentially a Swedish court saying no enforcement, which mm -hmm. is very rare in, mm -hmm. in the history of Swedish arbitration law. We should say though that uh, Ascom, Stati, Terraraf et al., have appealed this to the Swedish Supreme Court, which in September granted uh, a cert to review this case, which is also very rare. So the question of immunity is still alive. And I think this is the first time the issue of central bank assets and sovereign immunity will be tried by domestic Supreme Court. So mm -hmm. we, we, in that sense, this is not the optimal timing to do this segment, because maybe a year from now we'll have a Supreme Court judgment saying something else. Right. If so, we will get back to that uh, when it happens. Do you know the grounds for the review, for the limited review, for that decision? Because you say it's really rare. They, they so basically, uh, the Swedish Supreme Court in arbitration-related cases, and in, in most cases, almost regardless of the kind of law, only takes on cases where there's a precedential value. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really have a lot to do with the merits of the case. It's more about, do we need to fill out the law here? Is, okay. is, is, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And obviously, because this is a court interacting with the, the UN convention and yeah. these like really hot button issues. I think the Supreme Court would want to weigh in. Mm -hmm. And my sense from talking to Swedish arbitration lawyers is that we shouldn't take for granted that they will agree with the Court of Appeal. Mm -hmm. Because this is, this is, again, finally, me speculating without knowing anything once again. I think this, from a policy perspective, there are two opposing interests here from a small arbitration-friendly jurisdiction. Because you, on the one hand, you have this international, very like well-respected agreement, a treaty that Sweden wants to be a part of and wants to respect, mm -hmm. which would grant immunity, presumably, and on the other, you have the underlying notion that you want to enforce awards as much mm -hmm. as you can, and there are two like, competing mm -hmm. interests here. To the extent that that matters, I don't think it should, and it probably doesn't, but that's uh, a helpful lens with which you can, you can view There's this. There's a wider, I think, uh, approach of states being more limiting in their approach to enforcement, like in um, Belgium and in France, I think after what happened with UCOS, there probably was some political pressure <laughs> coming from somewhere or someone. I think that's, that's, that's a good point. This is not just in Sweden, it happens everywhere. And, mm -hmm. and I think the, the, there's an important distinction here between enforcing against state assets and mm -hmm. enforcing in private commercial arbitrations mm -hmm. where it's very hard to, to resist enforcement in the average commercial arbitration. But when it's state property or alleged state property, it's a bit more sensitive to go to a, to a different state's court and trying to, to do it against their will when they are saying that it's covered by immunity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not very popular, I think. I think we're going to get a different decision in the Supreme Court, in my opinion. It's going to be a very interesting decision in any event, yeah. whichever way they decide to go. I, I hope, or I don't really care, frankly, about the outcome. I don't have a strong opinion here, but I do hope that the Supreme Court engages more with the underlying public international law issues and mm -hmm. That's what, actually yeah. motivates if they do apply the convention or if they don't, why they do exactly. it, what is yeah. the reason, and does some investigation into the international law status of this well, that's convention it. as it applies in Sweden. Yeah. 
and also the, this national bank being a central bank. That question is very interesting and probably should have gone into more detail on the analysis because mm-hmm. then the nature of the asset is important. And to say the nature of the entity is the determination on whether it would be immune or not, I think is very different than to say this is like an interest-bearing loan that they're going to get from, uh, I don't know, whatever they're using that money for in this private bank in Sweden versus like putting it in some federal reserve. I think those two... Yeah, that's a, I didn't mention that, but you're, you're really onto something here because the court also talked about the difference between <laughs> categorically and functionally. They yeah. didn't really... They yeah. didn't endorse a functional test. They endorsed a categorical test and okay. basically said that because this is a central bank, the assets are presumed to be uh, central bank assets and thus covered by immunity. They didn't yeah. really care about the nature of the assets because by definition... Yeah. So one would assume, be, right. because it's a central bank assets, as it falls under the convention. That that's an protected. important analysis to have, right? Because that's the kind of debate that we have when we think about state responsibility mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there, it's one thing if it is an asset that the central bank holds for uh, monetary policy or something mm-hmm. similar that is like part of its official function, or if it's just like a commercial asset mm-hmm. that right. bears interest somewhere in mm-hmm. some vague commercial, yeah, um, with some vague commercial purpose. When is it going to be? Do you know? I don't know, and I don't want to speculate. But the Swedish Supreme Court tends to be rather quick, so uh, I haven't actually looked into the docket and if they schedule hearings. But I, I'm guessing sometime next year, if we're mm-hmm. lucky, we'll see something. Uh, so we'll, well, we'll, we'll keep get back. our ears out. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but now I think we should bring the wine out and move on to happy fun time. Perfect. Paperless arbitration. This is the year to make it happen. Or has <laughs> it already happened? Come on, guys. It seems like people have been talking about it for so long. Go green. No more paper. Stop the paper. We are killing too many trees. Um, I was just going. I was just curious to see when was the last debate about paperless arbitration before mm-hmm. COVID, of course. And apparently, it's funny. There's been um, an interesting blog post in 2017, and then another one in 2014. And the 2017 one is saying nothing has changed since three years. Why are we not <laughs> making it happen? And I think now it's kind of like a given that you know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of I understand a lot of rules have been amended. Um, to reflect the fact that you can file electronically, you know. But Jewel, you're acting as a secretary to arbitral, you know, an arbitral, arbitral tribunal. Um, what's your take on, you know, as has there been less paper since you've been working? I, th- I think so. Obviously, it differs a lot from arbitrator to arbitrator, and while everyone in theory, agrees on the usefulness of transitioning into paperless. Some, I think, are better at it than others Mm -hmm. are because it it takes a long time to to change a 50-year habit, probably. (laughs) I'm fortunate to work mostly with an arbitrator, Gene Kalitsky, who who is 100% paperless and has been for years. And Mm -hmm. it's so, so helpful when we work Mm -hmm. together, especially when we're not in the same place, when everyone's working from home. Because she annotates on everything on her iPad and she saves it in a cloud folder that only she and I have access to and I can edit things right away and we don't have to send things and parties don't have to send 95 boxes. To oh, so they don't, I was just going to ask, PO1 is not... P1 is, P1 is always, when it comes to that aspect, it's just like send digital files that are searchable to Gene and then it's, depending on who the other arbitrators are, it differs a little bit. And I've seen that in many... Everything, that, that even it, exhibits? Everything. Everything digital, yeah. Okay, good. 
as long as it's searchable. And I, that's not, that's, I think there are many arbitrators who do that as a matter mm, of course. Yeah. And I would say most arbitrators to a certain extent. I, maybe if I've already gauged like where, where the, like the perfect median is right now, where the, the default is, is that most are fine with having a USB stick mm-hmm. shipped, yeah. at least, so that they have it and that they can print it themselves to the extent that they need easily. And, mm-hmm. uh, but that, that you as an arbitrator would insist on having everything shipped in paper, I think that is increasingly becoming the exception rather than the norm. That is my That's impression. True. I hope so. I've seen a lot of arbitrators still requesting though printed, I mean, not everything, you're right, but still like maybe some, um, you know, specific format printing or some, mm-hmm. you know, some of the submissions, which which I've seen still Yeah, like today. the key, like hearing bundles or keys hearing or everything. Bundles, everything. I've seen everything. You've seen stuff Not only today. everything with submission, so as it's going, but then when you prepare for the hearing, yeah. you're expected to have the full case file in paper That's crazy. at the hearing. Oh my gosh. And then for your witnesses and then for the translators. I also think about all this paper that we spend carrying around in a plane Mm -hmm. when we were traveling from New York to our hearings in Europe. And we didn't, at the time, I was working for a law firm that didn't have an office in Europe. And we literally had boxes and boxes of exhibit and documents and everything to prepare for the hearing, which now I think is insane. Imagine, yeah. I mean, it's just crazy to have done that. In but to be honest, we're all the same generation, more or less, although I think I'm the junior by a little bit of a... Come on, what are you talking about? It's not very gentlemanish. If, if, big if, you could throw out the environmental concerns and everything else, wouldn't you rather read and annotate on paper over doing it on a screen? Yes, and that's the biggest point. It's not only annotations is the biggest thing, but printing, referring back to a page or a section, tabbing and like, it, unless you're a good guru, like sw- switching back and forth, that's going to be much easier when you've printed. And that's what we were all, like, we all went to law school when that was the default. Obviously, I, I know mm-hmm. now from teaching just a few years ago that students use obviously way more sophisticated tools themselves. But when we studied and the way we were taught, it was also still like paper is preferred. And that, even if we try to think that we're young and flexible and much better than the old arbitrators, at mm-hmm. least in my case, I would prefer that too, but I recognize that other interests sort of outweigh the benefit of, of insisting on everything on paper. I think it's, you just need to get used to something. I mean, I used to, yeah. when I was in law school, I used to, people would make fun of me because I, need, I needed to write down something. If I typed something, I couldn't remember it the same way as when I would write it down and underline in all my million colors. And I think you just need to grow out of a habit of, I mean, I still do write things down when I need to, but I... I move to, of course, I type everything like everyone. What I mean is, is just you grow out of a habit. And I think we need to grow out of a habit of printing. Mm-hmm. So now that everyone has been working remotely, like the first thing, of course, you know, we're thinking, okay, I need to have the right setup and right screen and everything. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, we need to, we need to buy a printer for home. Like I, I'm going to be needing to print yeah. not everything, but some stuff. And in fact, you know what? We just, <laughs> we're very lazy about it. And, and, and so I didn't, I stopped printing and I've been okay. I haven't stopped working guys, I'm still working. <laughs> but it's just you, of course it's not the same. Like you say, Brian, yes, I'd rather still, but I think I'm, I'm moving to a place now where I can read. Mm-hmm. Before I, I hated having a, a contract 
not printed. Yeah. For every case, I would at least have the contract with me. You know, I'm talking about, you know, commercial arbitration cases because in treaty cases, you just have the BIT, which is like five pages. But in, a, in like a, you know, commercial case, your contracts can be 200 pages in the annex. And, and in fact, you know, if you make them searchable, as you say, there's so many different softwares now to make them. Jan, you were mentioning this offline. There's so many... Um, softwares and different applications or stuff that you can do to annotate online. To annotate, exactly. So you can tab, you were talking about tabs, you can put tabs, That's you can put true. colors. You and just the control F aspect of it is so helpful, yeah. I think. Oh, you're yeah. Digging through documents and drafting yeah. things so you, you don't have to actually physically look for something, you can just search for a word yeah. that you know is in there somewhere. Right, mm. exactly. Like I've seen, yeah, exactly. I mean, think about those people who couldn't do that before. Yeah, that was they us. They used to be us. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember my first hearing, I was control Fing all the way. Oh, in law school, I was. Oh, in law school, okay, yes, of course, yeah. No, I was yeah. definitely control Fing all the way. Yeah. Jewel is the oldest soul here. Hey, well, yeah, he might exactly. be the youngest. Age is nothing but the Benjamin Button. Exactly. I'm pretty sure there are a lot of arbitrators that are much, much older than um, even our ages combined. Maybe but not. I think that maybe like, not. The thing but is, our... <laughs> like you're saying, we need to get out of it because there are electronic adaptations to make it so much easier mm -hmm. that we just don't even know about. So you think it's harder. So I know ICSID in their hearings they allow parties to rent or have iPads, so everyone can get an iPad. Mm -hmm. And if there's technology that you can basically say, okay, the witness is going to see this exhibit, and you basically stream it on everyone's iPad the exhibit. Now, and that's really easy and especially as like the junior trying to find the exhibit they're trying to do if that's fully capable for you to just send it out to everyone as soon as you find it is quite easy that is essentially what is happening now with the remote hearings when everyone's in their right. separate homes and you have one one screen that typically an external provider is managing and everyone sees the same things and you can take the witness to page x paragraph y and so everyone will see it at the same time so you can just follow along. That if you want to annotate, though, you still have to do the same thing on your own mm -hmm. screen. And it is a form of advocacy, like limiting everyone's attention to that one clause that you want to see, instead of drawing everyone to their individual pieces of paper that they've annotated themselves, saying, "But see this section," and then they've ruined your <laughs> argument. But there are, and we talked about this offline. There are also, and I'm ordering this, or I might get it for Christmas. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's called Santa and. <laughs> So it's called The Remarkable, and it feels like paper right now. The Remarkable? It feels like paper. Okay. And you can upload PDFs, but you can also take your own notes. So let's say you want to upload a PDF, you can annotate, and then it will export as a, like a, a new PDF. Or you can write notes, and it will convert it to a Word doc in typed form. Oh, so other people can also read your, your writing. writing. <laughs> if The Remarkable can read your writing. Uh, but that's great because if you do take notes, which I also like to do, Sadia, but the, mm. the pain with taking handwritten notes is then having to transcribe them and it mm. just doubles your work. So yeah. this will like make it only one time deal. Mm, looks no good. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. yeah that, that is a good Christmas gift. We, we had this thing last year about Christmas gift. It was yes. terrible. We didn't come up with one good idea. There this we go. It's a good one now. I think it's really important also to mention uh, Lucy Greenwood's Screen Pledge. I think it's really great. Mm, She's yes. done such a great job. And of course, we talk about the Equality Pledge. Is it called the Equality Pledge? The Pledge. Or just the Pledge for Gender Diversity. Yeah. The um, but the Green Pledge is equally important. And, um, and it's a commitment 
from you know law you know firms or individuals to not only reduce um, you know their printing but just be more conscious of traveling. Their, yeah traveling that's that's a big one and their you know carbon footprint footprint just generally in fact even emails create a huge carbon footprint I think people don't talk about this uh, enough but the fact that you know we were sending all these emails, I think it's true. Like it, it just consumes so much electricity and it increases your carbon footprint so much. It's not just electricity; it's the you know the the the, the memory you use on your computer and all of this. So it, it's really so it's it's much more than that. I think she just even even mentions it. Yeah, she mentions it in her pledge that uh, while also being mindful that email has a carbon footprint. So oh, okay. sometimes we don't need to have so many emails. You can just pick up the phone. Uh, and maybe that's more environmentally friendly or just see someone when this whole COVID thing just stops you open the door and you go <laughs> see your colleague and be like let's do this I had a conversation with the, someone about this yesterday saying it's a very disputes culture to have everything on email and very rarely having a collaborative mm -hmm. environment you want the paper trail you want the paper trail but also no one's really like brainstorming and like having genius ideas on the spot. You have to like go and like remunerate over. You say that often. I think you've said that a lot of times. And I tend to disagree with you because I have a smaller team, but we actually do that a lot. You do meet up yeah. and talk. Yeah, but we're a smaller team, so maybe it helps more. Um, but I agree with you when you want to give like formal instructions and so on and so that on. That has to be on Yeah, email. it is by email. So that, like you said, like people, you know, teams change and you want to have, you know, not just the paper trail, the litigation yeah. thing, but just to know where people were coming from and they give instructions. That's true. Um, but there's so many useless emails. Don't you get useless emails every day? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or thumbs up. Yeah. Or THX. No yeah. Dead. You're yeah. just like, oh my gosh. Or like, reply all when you are not really interested in what you reply to. <laughs> yes. So. Um, can, can I ask you on the, on the phone versus email thing? Have you. In your recent practice, last few years, ever encountered a fax machine? Is that still a thing that law firms mm, use? No. I know, I haven't. It's on my email signature, but I don't think anyone's <laughs> ever used it. You still have it on your... I think I have it too, I my gosh. must. Everyone's got it. Would you be able to operate a fax machine if that's Actually, what, it's a lie. I, did, I, I didn't use it, but I, I was faxed something once. So I, and it's it set up in a way that it comes up directly in my email as an attachment. So, so I didn't even know email. it was a fax, <laughs> but yes. So that's strange. That's a that's good. So that's funny. a good question. It's like in France, we had like Minitel. I don't know if you know what that is. It oh, doesn't exist anymore. It like was before internet. No, before, it was internet. before internet. Oh, because it was through the kit, like phone. I don't know. Don't ask me. It was, <laughs> so it was just things people. Yeah. So it was I weird. had someone fax. Joel knows who it is. Uh, faxing something from a hotel, and I didn't get the fax. Or I wasn't even at the fax machine. That's the problem with fax machines. I wasn't at the fax. You have to be at the machine to receive it. <laughs> and then I called the hotel and I was like, I know you just faxed something. Can you use that same machine to scan it and email it to and me? And email it to me. And no, I'm like, just, yes, of course. I'm just looking at our signature block. We don't, we don't, you have, don't have the F fax. anymore. We okay. used to have F. So that's a good question. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, no, wait, I really hope that people will move forward now and not stop yes. asking for... You know, uh, I think if you want hard copy, you should have that cost yourself. I think a lot of like arbitrators and, and partners and people higher up will just impose it on someone else to do it, and then you sit there with 
you know, they don't even read, they don't even know what they're printing. So they're saying, can you just print those files for yeah. me? And they don't even know it's 4,000 page files. I've done that before. When I ask someone, I'm like, can you print this attachment to my email? And then my secretary's like, are you sure? It's like 10 binders. I'm like, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. But when you're like some junior associate, you're like, they just want this. It has, they have yeah, to want yeah, every yeah, page yeah. of this. And then you come with yeah. eight binders and like, what is this? <laughs> and you just waste But it. one of the problems is the award. Like, didn't you mention that at some point? I think, Joel, that um, the award needs to be signed. Yeah, and in most yeah. rules, and in, and in, most, in some rules and some national jurisdictions, the award has to be signed. And I think, I don't know the, the rules. I think the ICC terms of reference, you also need physical signatures. So that, At least you did pre-COVID. Uh, yeah, pre, I think pre they're encouraging rules. towards moving away from that with the new rules, but yeah. you're right. Um, but that's a big problem, right? Because if the jurisdiction requires that you need to have a handwritten signature, mm -hmm. then you... It delays the award at least yeah. by two weeks because yeah. you have to, uh, assuming the arbitrators are in different jurisdictions, you have to like FedEx the award around. Mm -hmm. Which happens, yeah. right? Yeah yeah, 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 of course. So we need to change domestic rules as well. It will I'm happen. It. it will happen. <laughs> We're all talking about, you know, uh, green deals and green energy and green pledges. It should happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. We just need to be better in technology. Better in technology. So is this a response? I think that was one of our, was it yours? Like um, New Year oh, my, resolution? My thoroughly failed botched New Year's resolution. <laughs> <laughs> to make conversation less sexy. That is the point though. Like, Flying with a bunch of boxes for a case it was, that, that, that it has sort of a, I a, don't a sexy I, appeal. It does. I don't know. I've never felt like you know. Not when you're doing it, but yeah, it's cool. Yeah, you're outside. doing from the outside. <laughs> it's like having a very expensive handbag. You're like, mm, I've got all these cartons of or all these millions those, like, of documents. Suit, really suit yeah. <laughs> and rolling them out. Yeah. No, but it's like real expectation versus reality. Expectation. <laughs> you're rolling your fun like trial binder, and reality is like. Papers are exploding everywhere, and you're like picking them up off the street. <laughs> yeah, nice. I mean, the truth is, there is always a lot of documents in our practices. That's true, right? I mean, yeah. it's millions and millions of documents, but really don't need to, to print it yourself. Yeah. We have a final thing before we sign off. Yes. It is the paperless since 2006 or something. Uh, yeah, IA Reporter mm -hmm. hasn't been a paper magazine way uh, ahead of its time. Uh, that's Investment Arbitration Reporter, dear listeners, our sponsor for this season, an online service focused on international investment law with a team of expert analysts that offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, iReport launched a new content feature, a searchable data set on more than 1,400 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and counsel information. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Dot com, yes. <laughs> Online. <laughs> With that, I think we say cheers. 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 And thank cheers. you, Jan, for the editing job that you were about yes, to do. Yes, thank you. So happy to have you all joined us today. Yeah. Thank you, Carol Magnu, for the amazing research. And thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.